Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 5, the Gospel of John, the fifth chapter. For those listening or by way of the website later, I would suggest that you also listen to the introduction from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, and that you also listen to the psalm that was presented by David, Psalm 119, verses 121 through 128. John chapter 5. Before I read our verses for today, let's remind ourselves of what we've covered in the first 16 verses. There's two sections here, verses 1 through 9, and then verses 10 through 16. In verses 1 through 9, the Lord Jesus Christ returns from Galilee, where he spent most of his time, to Jerusalem because of a feast that was there. He comes to the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem and finds a great multitude of impotent folk, people with severe infirmities like blindness, like withered limbs, like cripples that could not move. He heals one of them. He doesn't heal all of them. He didn't even heal two of them. He healed one of them a man that had been there for 38 years in that condition. And he heals him. He asks him if he would like to be healed in verse 7, and the man explained to him that he didn't have anyone to help him get in the pool. And Jesus said, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole in verse 9. One of the things, we, we learned several things last Lord's Day in these first nine verses. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we have learned in this gospel, seeks out individual persons. Right. Jesus can deal with each one of us individually and personally. He is not deluded in the least way by him dealing with other people at the same time or on the other side of the earth. God is divisible that way. He is able to come to each of us in his entirety. We learned that. And that Jesus came for one man. Though there was a great multitude at the pool, he healed one. And he healed this man, and he later looked him up again in verses 10 through 16 and found him in the temple. We learned that Jesus, when he heals, it is instantaneous and complete. And the man was able, without physical therapists or occupational therapy, able to take up his bed and walk, and he did so. We also learned that we're thankful for our King James Bibles, which have been mentioned several times this morning, a little unusually to have that much statement about the King James Bible, but we learned why we use the King James. Because all the modern translations of the Bible don't even know what the Pool of Bethesda was there for and why a lame man would want to get into it. Because verse 4 is missing in their Bibles. And the last part of verse 3 is missing in their Bibles. So it says nothing about the angel stirring the water of the pool of Bethesda for someone to get into that pool, and the first one in, after the angel would agitate the waters, would be healed of whatever disease they had. This was no mineral spring. This was no natural healing property. This was a supernatural healing power provided by the angel of the Lord at the time of Christ coming into the world. But it's not there. It's in the King James Bible. If they stick it into one of the modern versions, like the English Standard Version or the NIV, they put it in brackets, which is just showing their fearfulness. 
because they know it doesn't belong there by their manuscripts. Because their two manuscripts, the Roman Catholic Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, don't have the text. But without the text, without verse 4, verse 7 doesn't make any sense because the impotent man said to Jesus, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. That is nonsensical without verse 4. Because verse 4 tells us the different properties of what the impotent man said in verse 7. We learn those things in the first section. Jesus is back in Jerusalem where he did not like to spend very much time because the Jews wanted to kill him. And it tells us that in the Gospel of John. So he spent much of his time around the Sea of Galilee, at Capernaum, at Nazareth, and the hill country there of Judea between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. The second section we looked at last Lord's Day is verses 10 through 16, and how the Lord Jesus Christ found this man later in the temple. But here's the issue at stake, and this issue is large, and it continues on into chapter 7. Over a year later, when Jesus returned to Jerusalem, this particular act of healing is brought up again as to why the Jews hate him and want to kill him. We have a man who has laid in a, in a crippled condition for 38 years. He is walking in the streets of Jerusalem carrying his bed, and it's the Sabbath day. Verse 9, the last clause, tells us, and on the same day was the Sabbath. Don't think for a minute that the Lord forgot. Jesus came to Jerusalem to heal this man on the Sabbath day. But as this man is walking in Jerusalem, here's what the Jews say to him in verse 10. It is the Sabbath day. What should they have said? Wait a minute. Are you the one that's laid at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years? Praise the Lord. All glory to God. Let the Lord be magnified. The Lord bless thee. The Lord be with thee. The greetings of the Old Testament. The salutations that they should have known from the word of God. Salvation is of the Lord. They should have given God the glory, recognized his healing, and rejoiced in it. But not these kind of religious people. These kind of religious people have their book of black and white rules that they have corrupted from the word of God by which they hold other people accountable but not themselves. These same Jews broke the Sabbath every day. Jesus points out their violations of the Sabbath in other places. They said, it is the Sabbath day. In verse 10, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And he explains, well, the man that made me whole told me to carry my bed, and so I'm doing it. And they asked him, who was that man? And he didn't know because Jesus as I have already said this morning, was not in the business of promoting himself. And so he had scurried away before the man could even recognize him or anyone else at the pool of Bethesda could recognize him. Jesus finds him in the temple in verse 14, gives him an exhortation, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. We ought to remember that that we should break off all of our sinning so that we might enjoy the tranquility that God is able to give. 
He knows your buttons. He knows you better than you know you. He's able to turn your world upside down and your life inside out if you don't break off your sins. So the man went in verse 15, told the Jews that it was Jesus, which had made him whole. Verse 16, this leads us in to today's consideration. And therefore, verse 16, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. He had healed the man and he had told the man, rise, take up thy bed and walk. So they wanted to kill him. These murderous, rabid, insane, hateful Jews. They did not love God. Jesus will explain to them repeatedly before we get out of the Gospel of John. They did not love God. They did not fear God. They did not honor God. And they certainly couldn't stand his son in his state of humiliation on earth to think that he had the right to break one of their little ticky religious rules about the Sabbath. If their animals, if their livestock needed watering, these same Jews would lead animals to water. Can an animal or livestock survive until the next day without water? Absolutely. But Jesus couldn't heal a man on the Sabbath day that had been in that crippled condition for 38 years. The hypocrisy, the wickedness of these men. So last night in your preparation, you read what Jesus thought of them in Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 33. He despised them and their wickedness and their hypocrisy and the whited sepulchers they presented in public. And he challenged them and dared them. How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? Remember that. Because this passage is teaching damnation more than it's teaching salvation. Because the direct lesson is what Jesus is teaching these wicked enemies of his. The indirect lesson is what we can learn about the doctrine of salvation and the resurrection of the dead from the Lord's words. Let me read to you verses 17 through 23. Lesson number three from John chapter five. But Jesus answered them. My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Amen and amen. May I tell you right now that you better honor the Son. You better honor the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You better honor Jesus of Nazareth. You better know who he is, where he is, and what he is going to do, and what is declared of him in the gospel. Because if you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father, and the Father is Almighty God, the Lord Jehovah. You cannot honor the one without the other after the New Testament was preached and declared because God reveals his son to men and the son reveals the father to men and you can't have a partial revelation or you're not truly born again because the two work together in revealing themselves to men. But Jesus answered them. It does not tell us whether he is formally on trial or he is standing in the street being accosted by a rabid crowd of these Jews. It doesn't tell us. All it says in verse 16 is that the Jews persecuted him and sought to slay him. And so he answered them. Their charge against him, though not stated in words here, is stated in verse 16 that he had broken their Sabbath commandment. So here's how he answered them. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. What a wonderful answer. I want you to know that this passage, all the way through John chapter 5, is not spoken to his apostles. It's not spoken to believers. It is spoken to unbelievers through its entirety. If you were to read the rest of this chapter carefully, there are numerous references to them. It says them in verse 16, the ones that wanted to kill Jesus, they are the antecedent to the pronoun them that is in verse 17. And so forth. Verse 18, then answered Jesus and said unto them again, the audience at hand are the ones of verse 16, the hateful enemies against Jesus Christ. They are against him and they hate him and want to kill him. They want to kill him for healing a man on their Sabbath. They didn't even understand their Sabbath. They hadn't kept their Sabbath as a nation. That's why they spent 70 years in Babylon. The reason it was 70 years and not 69 or 84 or 203 is because they were guilty of breaking the Sabbath as a nation. But they hated the Lord Jesus Christ. They hated this man of Nazareth. What good thing can come out of Nazareth? is the way they looked at that redneck town of fishermen up by the Sea of Galilee. They couldn't accept Jesus Christ in his state of humility because he was found in fashion as a man and he didn't do anything to enhance his reputation. There was no beauty nor comeliness in him that men should desire him. But he was the Lord of glory in a state of humiliation out of obedience to his Father in heaven to save us. He had to come down and be a man to lay down his life for other men and women and children that are his elect children by God's grace. And so remember the audience. When we look at any passage of Scripture, we should ask six W questions. Who, whom, what, why, when, and where. The six W questions of context because they're important for us to fully appreciate the passage and its intent and it's power to us. And so we know the who of this passage. It's Jesus speaking. Some of you have cheated. And you have a red letter edition Bible in front of you. So you know it's Jesus speaking. If the red letter was published correctly. The whom are these enemies of Jesus. 
So it's Jesus addressing his enemies. Why? They have accused him of breaking their little Sabbath. And he's worthy of death. What does he answer them? He says, you think I was showing a lot of authority? You think I was showing some prerogative in healing on the Sabbath day? Let me show you two more things about me. The two more things are, I have authority from God because I operate with him in total unity and have been assigned and charged by him to give or withhold physical, spiritual, or eternal life. Two, he has given all judgment into my hands, and when the great day of judgment comes, it will not be Almighty God you face, it will be me, because he's put all judgment into my hands. Brethren, I am overwhelmed by this context. I have goosebumps and am fearful to preach, but I will preach. I will preach what this passage says. And this passage is saying, you want to trifle with me? You want to mess with me? You want to conspire to kill me because I broke the Sabbath by healing a man? Let me lay a little bit more of doctrinal truth on you. God operates with me, and we are totally compatible of the same nature, have the same purpose, the same power, and the same authority, and he has assigned me to be the one to give or withhold eternal life, and he has assigned me to be the judge of the quick and the dead in the final day of judgment. Now what do you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, my brethren? What a glorious Savior he is, but what a glorious King he is. And this is how he spoke to his enemies who were sitting there foaming at the mouth, spittle on their chins out of foaming rage against the Lord Jesus Christ, wanting to kill him in their conspiracy against the humiliated Lord Jesus of Nazareth. We, my brethren, you and I have gone into John 5, verses 17 through 30, many times. They are countless we go in and we quote John 5 and verse 24. Or we go on and we quote verse 25. Then we compare verse 25 with verses 29 and 30. We love John 5, 24 because it declares three phases of salvation, three different verb tenses in one verse. We love John 5, 24. We love John 5, 25 because it tells us how we're born again. We're born again by the life-giving voice of the Son of God. And then to compare that voice so that we can learn a little bit about its power, verses 28 and 29 say that there is another resurrection, another quickening coming by the voice of Jesus Christ when he will descend from heaven with a shout. Come up! And all dead bodies will come out of the ground, verses 28 and 29. That is the general resurrection of all the dead. And they'll stand before him, and they will either be assigned to heaven, those that have done good, or they will be assigned to hell, those that have done evil. That, we've, do, we've dove into these verses before many times, and we love them because they teach us salvation truth. But brethren, I am wanting you to look at them today in a different light in their context. This is not Jesus in a seminary class explaining the ordo salutis of salvation or in Latin, the order of salvation. 
He is not explaining the phases of salvation. He's not explaining that regeneration comes before faith to his apostles in a seminary class. He's not at lunch with them, scribbling out some wonderful truth on a napkin to them about salvation. He is confronted by a mob that wants to kill him for healing a man the Sabbath day, so he's going to lay truth on them that they are the damned in the passage because they don't believe on him. So when he says, He that heareth and believeth on me and him that sent me shall not come into condemnation, he's ruling them out. And when he says at the end of this passage in verse 29, when he says, They that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation, he's referring to those standing in front of him. This is quite an invitation. We love verses 24, 25, 28, and 29. We've used them many, many times, and nothing changes about the way we interpret them. It's just the frame, the frame of context around these verses to cause us to do the same thing Paul did in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. After writing in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. How did God exalt Jesus? He gave him the authority and the power of giving or withholding eternal life, and he gave him the authority and the power of eternal judgment. He exalted him. Every knee's going to bow before this judge. Everyone's going to stand before Jesus Christ on his great white throne of judgment. Heaven and earth will flee away from the look on his face, according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Paul lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 and says, Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, as ye have always obeyed in my presence and in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what should the effect be to us who believe, who have heard the gospel, we've heard the voice of Christ, he's regenerated us, what should the effect be? For us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because believing on Jesus is not enough. It's believing on Jesus plus good works. The good works don't earn our way to heaven. The good works prove that our faith is valid. And so it says, the resurrection of life for those that have done good. There's nothing there about accepting Jesus, receiving Jesus, being baptized. None of that is there. It says in verse 29... And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. So we as believers want to be stirred up. We want to look at the truth that we've known for a long time in the choice verses in the middle and believe them again and review them again. We want to be stirred up that the only evidence that we have eternal life is by the righteousness of our lives, by how we treat our spouse, how we treat our children, how much passion we have for the Lord Jesus Christ, how much we hate every false way, as was explained to us in Psalm 119, verse 128 this morning. But then we want to see the context. This is the Lord of glory. He is not to be trifled with. And this is how he addressed his enemies that wanted to kill him. I hope I've made myself clear. We have turned to this passage so many times, and we've never seen the big picture of the framework around it as clearly. Never, we have never emphasized it, and I want to emphasize it today. 
these two things that I keep showing you, you think that I've been presumptuous to heal a man on the Sabbath day? God has given me the authority to give bodily life, spiritual life, or eternal life, or to withhold any of the three. God has given me all judgment and all authority to judge, and you will stand before me in the great day of judgment. Those two things are listed twice for you to get the point. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, that's the ability to give life, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. He is absolutely sovereign in the dispensing or the withholding of bodily life, spiritual life, eternal life. All three are in the passage. Second, next verse. For the Father judgeth no man. Of course God judges men. But he doesn't judge any men without Christ. Because he's assigned his judgment to Christ. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Jesus Christ is going to be the formal executor of his will and the executive office of Almighty God judging men sitting on the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, is what it says in the Bible. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. God has appointed two things. Do you see them listed there? 21, life. 22, judgment. And the same thing in 26 and 27. For as Verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Jesus can give life, bodily, spiritual, or eternal. Verse 27, And hath given him authority to execute judgment also. There's two things under consideration because he is the Son of Man. Because Jesus was willing to humble himself and become a man and humble himself to be a servant and humble himself to the death of the cross, God's highly exalted him. And here he tells us how God has exalted him given him absolute authority about the giving or withholding of life and of judgment. These men, these men will face the Lord Jesus Christ in the great day of judgment. Do you know what he did to their city in 70 AD? He raised it to the ground. He destroyed it. Their noble women ate their children. He destroyed that city. 1.1 million were killed in the siege of Jerusalem. It was far worse than any other calamity that has ever fallen a city. The massacre of Nanking is nothing in comparison to what happened in Jerusalem. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Dresden, Hamburg, cities of Germany, Tokyo, though there was great desolation, much destruction, and many lives lost, nothing in comparison to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus said, there had not been a tribulation in the history of the world like the destruction of Jerusalem, and there never would be. Right. And it happened in 70 AD when Titus Caesar brought the legions against the city of Jerusalem and leveled it. Jesus said, your enemies are going to come, the armies will approach. They'll dig a trench around the city of Jerusalem and lay it level with the ground. Why? Because the city did not know the day of visitation by this man. Do you love this man? Amen. What in the world in your life is important com in comparison to this? There is nothing. Because you go to your stupid little job, 
or I went to my stupid little job or my stupid little job compared to this. Brethren, beloved, wherefore beloved? He's highly exalted. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish I knew how to preach. Don't laugh at me. I almost believed in reincarnation last night. I was, I was asking the Lord, could he bring Ian Paisley back? Bring Easley, Easley Paisley back, Ian Paisley back, and put him in my office. I'd give him a one-hour preparation out of John 5, 17 through 30, put him in the pulpit, and I'd be his amen corner. Amen. I wish I knew how to preach. I don't know how to tell you what the Lord's put in my heart about this passage. Lord Jesus Christ, and his Father in heaven, I am sorry for going into this passage so many times and using verse 24 as a proof text, using verse 25 as a proof text, using verses 28 and 29 as proof text, and missing all that is around it that lifts you up and puts you on your throne and makes you so great that it ought to cause me more fear to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. Forgive me. So I'm here with you for a few minutes today. Verse 17. They want to kill him because he had healed on the Sabbath day. His first answer is, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Are you ignorant Jews trying to say that God never works on the Sabbath? What do you think brings the sun up on Saturday? What do you think causes rain on Saturday? Why do you think your heart beats on Saturday? He's still upholding all things by the word of his power on Saturday. My father worketh hitherto. The word hitherto means to this point in time. God's been working every day. God worked on the seventh day. It says he rested, and he rested from one thing and one thing only. Creation. He did not rest from providence. He did not rest from supplying. He did not rest from government. He did not rest from ruling. What in the world? This is superstition. You know I've had to answer Sabbatarians this week, don't you? Yes, I have. They got a sweet message because of John 5. Listen, when they wrote me this week, they wanted to tell me that the error I was making when I was saying that the Sabbath only applied to the Jews for 1,500 years of world history from Mount Sinai to the Lord Jesus Christ, they said, that's because you're missing who the real Jews are. We are. Us precious folk from the Isles of Great Britain. British Israelism. You know, and if you don't come from the Isles of Great Britain, then you're not God's children. You've heard of it before. That's what I got this week. Your error is you don't know who Israel is. The Sabbath does still apply to Israel. But Israel is us good old American boys. Skinheads and all. Aryan nation. All that junk goes together. I wrote them back about their fantasy and heresy and what we thought of it here. Amen. The Sabbath. Jesus says, my father worketh hitherto. My father's been continuing to work all along, and I work. If you want to charge me, you're going to have to charge God because God's my father, and we work together. We have, we're unified in purpose. Do you think we'd be opposing each other? God is my father. What he does, I do. He works in the Sabbath. I work on the Sabbath. He's kept you alive on the Sabbath for all the Sabbaths of your life. 
and now I healed a man the Sabbath. No big deal. Okay? It wasn't okay. Verse 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Are you with me? Did Jesus know that verse 17 would irritate them? Perfectly well. Better than you and I can imagine. He knew their individual hearts as the word of God. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, that's the verse 16 crime, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. No matter what the Jews thought about father and son and being equal, we know that Jesus was equal to the father in nature by his divine nature. Jesus is a dual-natured being. He has a divine nature that is God. He has a human nature. He has both natures. They're not violated by each other. And they work together. He's the God-man. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and yet he's God in the flesh. And so it can be said of him that he created the worlds. And all that sonship doctrine, which we totally believe, is for another time. But the Jews said, because he's called God his father, he's making himself equal to God. We believe he was equal to God, but he was equal to God in more than nature. He was equal to God in purpose. He was equal to God in power. He was equal to God in authority. He was equal to God in what he could do on the Sabbath day. Do you remember in Matthew 12, 8 and Mark 2, 28, Jesus said, because the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, I can dispense with the Sabbath for the sake of mercy toward my apostles who are picking ears of corn and rubbing it off and eating it on the Sabbath day. Matthew chapter 12 and Mark 2. So verse 18 is them accusing Jesus of a further crime of blasphemy, of claiming to be God by saying that God was his father. There's many ways in which Jesus and the Father are one. I mentioned that briefly to you yesterday in the preparatory email. The Jews knew the Bible enough that Messiah was God himself, because it says so. The Lord shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. This is about Messiah, because it's a virgin birth. And he shall be called Emmanuel which by interpretation in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 tells us that Hebrew word is God with us. So he's God. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, The Mighty God, The Everlasting Father. So they knew there's various ways, that, things that can be said about this particular verse when it comes to the sonship doctrine. And the last three minutes of the words coming out of my mouth are only for those in the congregation that want to be students of that doctrine and to know that this is one of the texts that is raised about the deity of Jesus Christ being the Son to the Father and still being equal in nature. But they're not equal in nature by sonship. They're equal in nature by the fact that it's the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word flat out was God. Underived, unbegotten God. Enough. Verse 19, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Here he goes again, Verily, verily. Do you know this doesn't occur in any other gospel? 
This double verily does not occur anywhere else but in the Gospel of John, and it occurs there 25 times. And he is laying some important truth on these Jews. It's here in verse 19. It's in verse 24. It's in verse 25. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, of a truth, of a truth, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. I did not heal the impotent man on the Sabbath by myself. I did it because I've seen God do it. Because God operates on the Sabbath, I also operate on the Sabbath. We don't do anything contradictory or contrary to each other. Can you understand that 19th verse? The son can do nothing of himself. I don't make my decisions willy-nilly. I don't make my decisions impulsively to go ahead and heal on the Sabbath day. But what he seeth the father do. The father worketh hitherto. Almighty God, the Lord Jehovah, had been working from creation without creating, but by providentially governing the universe that he had created. Anyone that had ever been healed from anything on this particular day of the week had been healed by the power of Almighty God. But now Jesus Christ, the mediator, was on the planet, and he was operating in total agreement, total unity of purpose, unity of power and authority, and the right to dispense with the Sabbath and do works of goodness and mercy toward men. And so that's what verse 19 is for. What he seeth the Father do, that's what Jesus does. For what things soever he doeth, that's the Father, these also doeth the Son likewise. For you to charge me with a crime, you must charge God with a crime. I did not do it of my own will. I did it in conjunction with God my Father because we have one purpose, we have one form of action, and that is we do work on the Sabbath. Yes. Of course, that would have calmed them down. <laughs> Guess again, as our brother asked you a few times this morning. Verse 20. Oh, Lord, help me. I just want to look at the first six words and just stare at them. I just want to stare at them. For the Father loveth the Son. 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 They didn't like him calling God his Father because it made him equal with God. Jesus adds this little element. I don't operate on my own. I am in such close connection, companionship, friendship, unity, love with, with my Father that what we do, we do together. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. God has revealed to me all that he does. And he will show me, him, Speaking of the Son, are you with me in verse 20? He, that is the Father, will show him, that is the Son, greater works than these that ye may marvel. Two works. Giving of life, judgment. Giving of withholding of life, judgment. You think this was a big work to heal a man on the 
Sabbath, he's going to give me two more works to show to you for you to marvel. That marvel is not to be convicted. That marvel is not to be converted. That marvel is not to be saved. That marvel is to be to wonder in stupefaction at the power coming out of this man that they denied to be the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel. Amen. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jews got together in a conspiracy and said, we have a problem. A notable miracle has been done and all men are going to follow him unless we do something about it. They marveled at the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead after he was in the grave four days and stunk. When the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts chapter 3 was raised, the Jews did the very same thing. They called a council. Everyone that comes to the temple enters by the beautiful gate or some other gate. They have seen that man. He's running around the temple, jumping up and down because he's so full of energy from the healing by Jesus Christ we have a problem on our hands. They marveled at the miracle, but were never convicted about the one that performed it. Um, I'll give you two things to wonder about. Every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that I am Lord by giving or withholding eternal life and by the eternal judgment that's coming. For the Father loveth the Son... For the Father loveth the Son. You better not mess with the Son. A very powerful and rich Father with a good Son that He delights in and loves very much. If that Son were attacked by enemies, what would the Father do? He would exert all the force that He had to defend His Son and to destroy his enemies. For the Father loveth the Son. I am in a tight relationship of love with Almighty God, the Lord Jehovah, that you give lip service to in your religion. He has shown me everything that he does, and that is what I do. And he is going to show me and give me an assignment to do a couple of other things that are far greater than this, so that you might marvel and wonder and be astonished that my humiliated person on earth now in a state of humiliation with no reputation has the power of the universe. The two things that are most godly when we think about life or not and judgment. What else can you think of that's higher when it comes to sovereign authority than those two? You want to say creation because he can create a rose? How about taking a human soul along with the devil and his angels and casting it into hell? That when they say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name done many wonderful miracles? And then he will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Do you know how much authority that is? He's going to show me two more things. So we look at verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Had the Father raised any dead in the Bible in the Old Testament? Yes. Via Elijah he raised the son of the widow woman of Zarephath. 
And for Elisha, he raised the son of the great woman of Shunem. God did. Jesus, would Jesus be able to do that? Raise people that had temporarily died in the New Testament? Yes. The son of the widow of Nain, who was on the funeral buyer. He walked over to him and said, son, arise, get off that thing. Go comfort your mother. The, da- the, the daughter of Jairus. And then Lazarus. Jesus did the same. But the passage is going to lead us into two other kinds of quickening. The passage is going to lead us in verses 24 and 25 into the quickening of regeneration. And it is called quickening in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where it says, and you hath he quickened. What does it mean to quicken someone? It means to make them alive. What is under your fingernail? What is under your dead fingernail? You can cut the end of your fingernail off and it doesn't hurt because there's no life in it. But what is under your fingernail is quick. It's called the quick because it's fully alive. And you hath he quickened. The Bible says that Jesus is coming to judge the quick and the dead. When quick and the dead are put in opposition to each other like that, you know what dead means. What does quick mean? Alive. He's coming to judge those that are alive and those that are dead. They're all going to be pulled together before his great white throne, and he is going to be the judge. And so that's the second quickening, and it's right here in the passage, verses 24 and 25. It's the giving of eternal life. It's passing from death unto life in verse 24. It's those hearing the voice of the Son of God giving them eternal life in a spiritual new man of verse 25. Then there is eternal life and eternal death in verses 28 and 29 because John writes, Jesus speaks, John records, verse 28, marvel not at this. Marvel not at what I've shared so far, that my Father worketh hitherto and I work. As the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given me to have life in myself. Don't marvel at that. Don't marvel at the fact that I regenerate men and and give them eternal life. How about this one? All that are in the graves are going to come out. 6,000 years of world history, every corrupt, worm-eaten, bird-eaten worm is going to be put back together, every cell of every man, woman, and child, those that drown in the flood, the whole earth is going to be resurrected by the power of the life-giving voice of Jesus Christ that will give life to their bodies. And they will stand before God, and they will be cast both body and soul into everlasting hell. Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will tell you whom ye should fear. Fear him, which after he hath killed, hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that there'll be a great white throne and death and hell will deliver up the dead that are in them. All the dead bodies are going to come up before the Lord Jesus Christ. The souls will be united with those bodies, both the wicked and the righteous. And the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And the righteous will be entered into the presence of the Lord forever. The Father loveth the Son. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Do you know what these greater works were going to do? Do you know what the works that Jesus did in front of this kind of Jewish audience did? It removed the cloak for their sins. That is what the Bible says. It it left them guilty because Jesus displayed his power in front of them, his perfect doctrine in front of them. He quoted scripture to show that he was the fulfillment of it. And he's going to tell us later in the Gospel of John 
If I had not spoken to them, and if I had not done these works before them, they'd have still had a cloak for their sins. We didn't see enough evidence that he was the Son of God. Uh, 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 uh. Never going to happen with the Lord Jesus Christ. Has it happened with you? You know, we come in here and sing, oh, how I love Jesus. We come in here and sing, crown him with many crowns. I think I sang it this morning a little differently than you may have. I hope that preparation last night helped you sing it. We should crown him with everything we can give him. My brethren, church, do you honor the Lord Jesus Christ? The two things that the Father would give him are our life in verse 21 and judgment in verse 22. Verse 21, for as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, Anyone regenerated in the Old Testament was quickened by Almighty God because Jesus Christ did not exist yet. Even so, the Son quickeneth whom he will. Jesus chose out of all of Israel to raise three from the dead, the son of the widow of Nain, the daughter of Jairus, and Lazarus. Three, whom he will. Were there others that died during his three-and-a-half-year ministry? Were there other parents weeping and crying and hiring mourners to go about making a big noise? Did Jesus heal? Nope. Just a few. Are all regenerated? No. Just whom Jesus Christ regenerates. Who will get into heaven? Those that Jesus lets in. Who will not? Those that he won't. He will be the judge. The books will be opened. And if they're not found written in the book of life, of the Lamb... They'll be sent into the lake of fire. This is the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. Verse 23, why is God going to give him these two great prerogatives and authority and power? Verse 21 of life, verse 22 of judgment. Here's why, that all men should honor the Son. Even as they honor the Father. If you're going to honor the Lord Jehovah, you better honor his Son, Jesus Christ. He is Jehovah God in the flesh. He operates by the love of God. He operates by the direction of God. They are of one purpose. They are of one power. They're united totally in what they do. They never contradict each other. There is no difference between them when it comes to operating in the world that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And our final sentence before our break, He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. You can't have one without the other. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? How do you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? How are you honoring the Father? How are you honoring the Son? Do you know what Jesus said? It's this simple. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you honor Jesus Christ? If ye love me, keep my commandments. That is the same spirit from David Because the one who said those words is the son of David. What you heard from Psalm 119, 128 earlier this morning, that we should esteem God's precepts concerning all things to be right and to hate every false way can be summed up a different way. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Let's not worry, as we were also told this morning, about the isms and the enemies outside the church. Let's worry about the enemies within us, the lusts that war against our soul. 
If you'll join me again on Wednesday evening, and if the Lord has not taken us away out of this place, which would be far better, you will hear the war for your soul. And it is not a war from the world, and it is not a war from the devil. It is a war from the lusts that are inside of you, that cause you to be lazy, cause you to be proud, cause you to be selfish, and all the thing, and bitter, and wicked, and froward with your mouth, and to fantasize in your mind those are the lusts of our flesh that war against us. How do we honor the Son? We kill those lusts and live for Him. He had His body killed and lives for us. He has saved us with an everlasting salvation. He has been given the authority and power of eternal life and of judgment. We will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Jesus Christ of Matthew 23. He is the Jesus Christ of this passage. He is the Jesus Christ of Hebrews 1. And therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Yes, I know the direct application for that passage, and the reason you know it is because I've taught you, but I also know the indirect application of that passage, and that is we want to honor the Son, and as we honor the Son, we honor the Father, and the Father loves the Son and has highly exalted Him, and this is how the, the meek and lowly Jesus answered His enemies that wanted to kill Him. I love this Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. the one of the world, the caricature that is painted by the Catholics, that effeminate, long-haired, hippie, hermaphrodite, I do not love, I hate and despise, that is another Jesus. This is the Jesus of the Bible. And he's our Savior. Amen. He's our brother. He's our friend. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. But how can we identify ourselves that way? By loving him, keeping his commandments, and making our calling and election sure. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.